And for reflection this afternoon, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 86. Psalm 86. We will read the psalm. It's hardly likely that we'll be able to get through it, but we'll read it and uh, then proceed. Psalm 86, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant for you, O Lord. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any words like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your love that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. David, being the author of this psalm, as the heading indicates, wrote this psalm out of a context of troubles and trials, difficulties. David was a man who, from his early, from the earliest days in the court of Saul, you remember, had experienced one trial after another. We recall how that Saul hounded him. David, many a time, was on the run for his life. We know as well the trials he faced in his own family from his son Absalom, from whom he was also on running. The specifics of this crisis that the psalmist was going through here in Psalm 86 are not mentioned, which is a, in a way is good, because with the absence of any mention of the circumstances or suffering, we can focus on those principles whereby he was able to find victory and relief through the power and grace of God. 
I believe in wisdom, God does that. He, many times we are not given the circumstances, the specifics, because what is most important would really be the principles whereby those people they were able to overcome the promises of God or sources of God. The fact is, these principles are applicable to all kinds of suffering. As we're reminded in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, that the temptations and by extension the sufferings we experience, we go through, are not unique to us. Others have been through them. Uh, but here's the principle, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation make the way of escape so that you might be able to bear it. Similarly, the Apostle Peter writes concerning sufferings that his readers were facing. He reminds them in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. And of course, the, the, the comfort, the assurance, the exhortation he gave them was that the devil can be resisted, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Now, as he typically does in circumstances of trials and sufferings, David, we see here in this psalm, turns to God for help. And as we see in the very last line of verse 17, God graciously answered his prayer, coming to his aid and strengthening him. Now, one striking feature as we read this psalm will be evident to us is its rich allusions and quotations to the book of Deuteronomy. For instance, verse 5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you, is an allusion to Exodus 34 and verse 6. Verse 8, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like your, your, your works, recalls Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verse 24. Verse 10b, you alone are God, echoes Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, which states, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And why is this important to know? Because these citations of David reveal how much he was steeped in the scriptures, how much the scriptures aided him in the outpouring of his heart to the Lord. And this is all as it should be. It is because it is through the scriptures, the word of God, that we derive the categories, the thoughts, the language that will enable us to think along the lines of God's thoughts and so effectively communicate with him. As we have said time and again, we never will pray effectively. We will never pray with confidence unless we are steeped in the word of God, unless we are informed by the word of God. And that is why you'll find he uses here the language of Scripture throughout. When he calls on God, he says, there's none like you. He's echoing Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. And of course, when he points all the various characteristics of God, attributes of God, he is calling upon the word of God. So what great profit there is in knowing the word of God. The fact is, it is the word of God that not only enlightens us as to how we are to pray, but how we are to navigate, how we are to weather the difficulties, the trials that come into our lives. It is through the scriptures that we find encouragement. It is through the scriptures that we find assurance when our world seems to be falling apart. That is why we so much need to store up and treasure in our hearts and minds 
the word of God. Now, there are two matters which we want to consider this evening from this particular psalm. We want to consider, first of all, this prayer of David, and we want to look at the spirit of his prayer, the spirit of his prayer. That is the manner in which he petitions the Lord. And related to the spirit of his prayer here in Psalm 86 is the grounds on which he expects the Lord to answer him. You'll notice throughout the psalm, as he cries for help, he presents a series of reasons as to why the Lord should come to his rescue. Each reason is prefaced by the word for in verses 1 to 7. In verses 1 to 4, each of the reasons is based on his attitude toward the Lord. So let's look at the first petition. The first thing we note concerning his prayer, the spirit in which he prayed, he prayed, notice, out of a sense of destitution. Out of a prayer, out of a sense of destitution, he presents to the Lord the fact that he's poor and needy. Here's what he says in verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. And here we see that from the very outset, he comes before God, not with an arrogant sense of entitlement, but with a humble posture of destitution. He comes with an attitude of one who is completely down and out, at rock bottom, we would say, and hence as one who is totally, absolutely dependent on the Lord. He approaches the Lord not with a sense of merit or deservedness to be heard by the Lord, not at all. He comes to God out of a sense of abject poverty, out of a sense of dire need. He comes to God as one who is poor in spirit. You see, while you and I are invited to come to the throne of grace, boldly, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, asking for whatever we want, John chapter 15, verse 7, we cannot approach God, we cannot come to him making any kind of demands on him. We have to come humbly. We have to come as one who is dependent. We have to come as one who has a sense of destitution in need to the God who owes us nothing. Indeed, all his dealings with us, all the prayers he answers, are answered by virtue of his grace. And grace, as you know, signifies undeserved kindness. We don't deserve it. God simply gives it to us. And this sense of destitution, this sense of utter need before God, is, according to our Lord Jesus, what counts with God. Because in his Sermon on the Mount, you recall our Lord Jesus teaching, he's saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The prophet Isaiah cites the fact that God is at home with those who are of this spirit, with those who are of this posture, here's what he says in Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the Lord, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God seeks particularly those who will come to him not out of a sense of arrogance, not out of a sense of entitlement, not out of a sense of deservedness, but out of a sense of need, out of a sense of humble dependence on him. 
Isaiah 66 verse 2, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. And so we see, first of all, the basis on which psalmist expected God to hear, to answer his prayers, was his sense of destitution, his posture of utter need, and hence his absolute dependence on God. Secondly, not only does a psalmist pray out of a sense of destitution, but notice he prays out of a sense of devotion to God. He prays out of a sense of devotion to God. Notice in verse 2, in asking the Lord to preserve his life, he states there, for I am godly. Now somebody says, wait a minute. <laughs> Can we pray like that? Can we come to God asking him for mercies and Present to him the case, for I am godly. Well, the thing we need to say here is this, that given the overall context of his prayer here in the psalm, this must not be understood as his asserting any kind of self-righteousness before God. Actually, the last line of verse 2 defines what he means by this claim, I am godly. So if we want to understand what he means when he says, I am godly, we have to look at the last line of verse 2. And we discover there that to be godly means at least three things. First of all, to be godly is to assume the posture of a servant before God. It is to assume the posture of a servant before God. The psalmist, notice there, claims to be God's servant, which means, among other things, that he belongs to God, that he's ever at the disposal of God to be used by God. However, and whenever God sees fit, to take the posture of a servant is to take what the world would consider to be a mean, servile position. The psalmist is saying here, I am just that before the high and holy God of heaven. To be godly is to assume before God the posture of a servant. Second, to be holy, notice in the last line of verse 2, is to trust in God. A godly person is one who trusts in God. Save your servant who trusts in you, he says. The fact is, here's the point, there is no godliness where there is not trust in the Lord. Because unbelief, you see, unbelief toward God, the very opposite of trust in God, is a defining characteristic feature of the ungodly. That is why the ungodly are referred to as unbelievers. That is why in Revelation 21, we discover, Revelation 21 verse 8, they are called the unbelieving. And these are among those who will be cast in the lake of fire. Unbelievers, to be unbelieving is to be ungodly. Also, you'll note, to be godly, we see the last line of verse 2, is to appropriate or take God to be one's God. We could ask a question to those who are not saved. In fact, here's the point. The, the defining feature of one who is saved is that that person has taken Christ to be their Savior and God. And not until one has taken Christ to be one Savior, one's God, until, not until one has appropriated to oneself the Lord Jesus Christ as one Savior, as one's Lord, as one God, that one can be said to be godly. That David prayed then out of a sense of devotion to God serves as a reminder to us that in prayer, whenever we come to him, here is what we must bear 
in mind. It serves as a reminder to us that there's not, where there's not a commitment to serving, to trusting, and loving the Lord as our God, we should not expect him to answer our prayers. If we're not godly, if we're not living holy lives, if we're not trusting in God, if we're not having before God a posture of humility, serving him, if we have not taken him to be our God, claiming him, you are my God, then we have no entitlement to pray, let alone expect that for God to answer our prayers. Here's what James 5.16 tells us. James 5.16 says this. The prayer of who? A righteous man has great power as it's working. Psalm 32 verse 6. Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you. The psalmist says there. Now thirdly, as to the spirit in which a psalmist prayed, not only does he pray out of a sense of destitution and out of a sense of devotion to God, but notice in verse 3, he prays determinedly. <laughs> he prays perseveringly. He seeks for the Lord, notice, to answer him on the grounds that he cries to him all the day. And here we are reminded, beloved, of the teaching of Scripture that prayer is to be earnest and persevering. In Luke chapter 18, verse 1, the Lord Jesus taught, Men ought always to pray and not to fade. Pray without ceasing. Paul instructed the Thessalonian Christians in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. And David, we know, was a man who prayed daily. And what we have here in this psalm is not a man who uses prayer out of desperation, his was not a prayer, a passing prayer of desperation, but his was a prayer that was a matter, it grew out of a way of life, prayer as a way of life. Someone as well said, prayer is always in order, and if it is done in the will of God, it cannot be overdone. Our failure in prayer is not that we pray too much, but we do not pray often enough. The prayer with which God is pleased, the prayer that disposes God to hear us, is the prayer that is prayed out of a sense of dependence on God. Yes, destitution, need before God. It is a prayer that is prayed with a sense of devotion to God, and it's a prayer that is prayed with determination, with perseverance. For the psalm is prayed with a spirit of wholeheartedness. That is to say, he prayed with a spirit of transparency. He prayed with a spirit of openness to the Lord. Look at verse 4. He expects the Lord to answer his cry for help on this grounds. Quote, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. What is he saying there? In saying that to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, he's saying, you and you only, Lord. I'm not concerned with the person beside me. I'm not concerned about the impressiveness of my language, my prayer language. It is to you that I'm lifting up my soul. Openness, honesty with God, coming to him with, without any kind of pretense, without any kind of hypocrisy, approaching him with no intention of hiding anything from him. No, we can't do that. That is what it means to lift up our souls before God in prayer. 
And that's the kind of prayer that God delights to hear and answer. Psalm 51 verse 6 says he delights in truth in the inward being. Prayer, true prayer, the prayer that reaches God, the prayer that avails with God, is the prayer that grows out of a spirit of wholeheartedness, of openness, of honesty before God. So in verses 1 to 4, the arguments he uses for approaching God, the arguments he uses as the, the reasons why God should answer his prayers are based on his attitude toward God. Now what we have in verses 5, 7, 10, and 13, we find the reasons he cites as to why God should help in helping him, why God should intervene in helping him, and these are on the basis of his character, God's character. So verses 1 to 4, why, why, Lord, do I expect you to answer my prayer? Because of the spirit in which I'm coming to you. Why, Lord, should you answer my prayer because of your character? Verses 5, 7, 10, and 13. And the first of all, he cites the fact of God's graciousness. Lord, you need to hear and answer my prayer because of who you are as a God who is gracious. Look at verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Here's the point. It is on, on the grounds of God's grace, on the grounds of God's grace as evidenced by his goodness, by his forgiveness, by his unfailing love, that those who seek him can expect that he will hear and answer them accordingly. The grace of God, God's graciousness. In grace, he forgives freely and extensively. In grace, he loves undeservingly. This is what gives us the assured confidence that we can come to this God in prayer. Third, as the grounds on which the Lord should answer his prayer, David suggests, he cites the fact of God's proven track record in answering prayer. Look at verse 7. In the day of trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. One of the distinctive features of the God of Scripture, the God of Holy Scripture, the God of the Bible, is that unlike all other so-called gods, he, as the living God, hears and answers prayer. That is his distinctive feature. That is what makes him the living God. This is the recurrent refrain of the saints in Scripture. The prophet Jeremiah, listen to the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations 3, 55 through 57. Jeremiah is testifying to the reality that the God to whom he prays is a prayer-hearing God. He says this, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. Jonah, even disobedient Jonah, knew the reality that, uh, of that God is a prayer hearing and answering God. Jonah chapter 2 verse 2, he says this, I call, and he's praying from the belly of the fish. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. And by way of application, we can therefore say this, that 
The Lord is a prayer-answering God, therefore says to us that prayer, whenever you and I come before him in prayer, prayer is never a wasted exercise. Prayer is never a wasted exercise because the God to whom we pray is the living God and a function of his being the living God is that he hears. Unlike the gods of the heathen that have ears but hear, hear not, our God hears and answers prayer. We don't have time to look at the other characteristics, so let me jump ahead to look at, secondly, we've looked at the spirit of his prayer. Let's now look at the substance of his prayer, the substance of his prayer. And separate and apart from the spirit in which a psalmist approaches the Lord in prayer, what we notice here, what is most impressive, what is most interesting is the substance of his prayer. The things for which he prays to the Lord. And if you look at the psalm closely, you'll know that the psalmist does not rattle off to the Lord a wish list of things he thinks would make life comfortable for him, would make life happy for him. The things he prays for concerns not so much his escape from trouble, not so much physical deliverance as it is his spiritual well-being. Now think of this. Here's a man going through trouble, real trouble. He's in a state of dire need, and he's calling God to help him. What would you pray for? What would I pray for? Yes, we want the immediate physical deliverance. Not so the psalmist. A close reading of the psalm indicates that his prayer is largely concerned with his spiritual well-being. You know why? Why should we begin to think of our spiritual well-being in times of troubles, in times of trials, in times of suffering? Because what we're going through might well be because we are spiritually out of sync with God. God sometimes uses trials, uses sufferings to draw attention to him. And so David, his prayer here is largely concerned with his spiritual well-being. Notice verse 1. Verse 1 could well be a prayer for the preservation of his soul. Because the Hebrew word that's translated there as life, nefesh, can also mean soul. And I'm suggesting that he's actually praying here regarding his soul based on the context of the passage in which we see him praying for other spiritual needs. In verse 4, notice in verse 4, he prays that the Lord would gladden, that is, bring joy to his heart. In verse 6, he prays for what? For grace. In verse 16, he prays for grace and strength. His prayer, notice in verse 11, is that the Lord would teach him his will, would teach him his way. Now, that is the mark of a truly spiritual man, isn't it? He's going through afflictions, he's going through some trouble, and instead of asking the Lord to get him out of the trouble, he's asking the Lord, Lord, teach me your way. Doesn't it remind us of what the Apostle James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 5? If any of you, and he's writing in the context of suffering, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally, freely, and does not hold back, does not scold, And how we need to understand God's 
with God's mind when it comes to our suffering. We will not always understand, but we can ask God in prayer to teach us his ways. And then you'll notice in verse 11, another spiritual prayer. He also petitions the Lord to make his heart singly focused in fearing his name. He says there, unite my heart to fear your name. What is he saying? Lord, there are a lot of loose ends in my life. I need to gather them up and concentrate on this one business of fearing you, of honoring you, of worshiping you, of serving you. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's what Jesus was talking about in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Pure, to be pure in heart is to be singly focused on God. And the psalmist is realizing here the truth taught by Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, either will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or money. Divided loyalties, beloved, we know, doesn't cut it with God. God wants us to worship him with single focus. And hence the psalmist prays, unite my heart to fear your name. In 1 John 5 verse 14 we are told, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he, he hears us. Yes, there are good legitimate things for which we might pray and yet not receive them because they might not be God's will for us. There are many good things that we can pray for and we might not get them because they're just not God's will for us. You say, give an example. Even good health for some people, it might not be in God's will to heal. God has his purpose. It might not, not be God's will to make um, some of us wealthy for some reason or another in his wisdom, in his providence. But here's the point from this psalm, the suggestion of this psalm, based on the substance of the psalmist's prayer, we can assuredly say this, that such requests as he prayed for, wanting to know God's will, wanting to have a single mind toward God, a single heart toward God, wanting to be taught God's ways, we can say of these requests that they'll always be granted because these are certainly things that God wills. For us. When one prays along these lines, the joy of the Lord in the soul, as the psalmist prays, gladden my heart, instruction in the ways of the Lord, the desire for a heart that's focused on the fear of God. One is praying for precisely those things that with God constitute priority. You see, it's important we always keep in mind that when it comes to prayer, the invitation to make requests to God is no promise, is no promise that God will literally give us everything we want. The fact is there are qualifiers to this invitation, and one such qualifier is the will of God. First John 5 verse 14, which we cited a while ago, if we ask anything according to his will, 
He hears us so that prayer is not so much about our getting what we want as it is getting what God wills. And so as we see that the changes the psalmist desired and prayed for were largely spiritual in nature. We can tell something about the quality of our Christian lives by the things we pray for. Here's a challenge to you and me. As we examine our prayer lives, what do we find ourselves asking for most of all? Is it the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Is it our spiritual growth? Is it the glory of God? Or is it, Lord, give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that, help me out of this situation, and so on and so forth. Psalm 86 teaches us to pray along the lines of what God deems priority. And notice another thing that he prayed for. He prayed for forgiveness, even as he prayed concerning his troubles. Among the things he focused on was the forgiving grace of God. And doesn't this make sense? Because without the forgiving grace of God, in fact, we can put it like this, without doubt, one of the key sustaining realities that will enable us to face temptation, that will enable us to find the strength to face sufferings and temptations and trials is the sure knowledge that we have been forgiven by God. We face troubles with optimism, knowing that if God is for us, then no one can be effectively against us. The songwriter says, and with this I close, his will have I joy in fulfilling as I'm walking in his sight, my all to the blood I'm bringing, it alone can keep me right. An allusion to the forgiving grace of God, right? And then here's what he says. The cross is not greater than his grace. The storm cannot hide his blessed face. I am satisfied to know that with Jesus here below, I can conquer any foe. That's why you see, even though he was going through all of those troubles, tribulation, he's is citing among his desires the need for forgiveness. Because to be forgiven by God, to have a clear conscience before God, equips us to stand against any foe. For if God be for us, who can be against us? May God bless these truths to our hearts. May the words of our mouths, the meditation of our hearts, be acceptable in his sight. For Christ's sake.